Ephesians chapter 2, page 1174. The Apostle Paul has been writing to the Ephesian Christians and we pick it up there at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in, in, order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks, Rick. Happy birthday as well. Hi, everyone. Great to be with you this morning. My name's Mark, if we haven't met. My main role here at Trinity Bay is looking after the young adult service, which happens in the evenings, uh, just in the community hall next door at 6pm. I want to start by asking, have you ever had something happen to you that you didn't deserve? I'm going to assume that for most people the answer to that is going to be yes, uh, the, the thing that stands out to me in my life was a story that happened about nine years ago to me. I used to go to Adelaide University in the city. I used to ride my bike in there, and the, the last leg of the journey in was riding just along the end bit of Pulteney Street into the uni. And you might know that um, where Rundle Mall and Pulteney Street intersect, there's always about 10 or 15 taxis lined up on the side there. One day I was, I was riding in there, I was going as fast as I could go, and just as I was about to ride, to ride my bike past a taxi, there was a, a woman in the back seat of the taxi who decided at that moment she was going to open the taxi door and, and step out onto the, the roadside. And so there I am, I'm, I'm riding along, and as I've got to the taxi, I've suddenly seen this door fling open about a metre in front of me. And it's one of those moments where you just know something bad's going to happen, and there's Nothing you can do about it, you just have to toughen up and accept it. So I, I rode straight into the taxi door, and next thing I know, I'm lying on the ground a few metres away from the taxi, dazed, I've got a sore head. Uh, There's two questions going through my head at that time. Uh, the first one was, what on earth just happened? And the second one was, what did I do to deserve that? actually knocked the taxi door off when I hit it, so the, the taxi driver was probably asking the same question. 
Well, the passage we're about to look at this morning tells us about something good that we've received that we didn't deserve. Something far better than anything else that we could ever receive in this life. Uh, So keep your Bibles open. Uh, Have our pray, and then we'll unpack the passage together. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this great message that we've got here in Ephesians chapter 2, this this awesome truth of the Christian faith. Uh, We just pray that as we read this, as we discuss it together, whether whether this is the first time people here have read it or whether it's the hundredth time, uh, we just ask that you'd be showing us all new things from this passage, uh, that you'd be helping us to take in this truth and that you'd be really pressing it into our hearts. Amen. All right, so just to get our bearings, this is the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Now, most of the people who were reading this letter would have been from a, a Gentile background, so they weren't Jewish. Uh, we've, been, we've gone through chapter one over the last two weeks. Colin's been preaching on it. In the first half of chapter one, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw um, God's mission being outlined. So his mission to bring all things in heaven and on earth to unity under Christ. And in the second half, we saw Paul's prayer that he makes for his readers, that they might know how treasured they are by God and the sure hope that they have in Jesus. And so today, we come to chapter 2, and Paul starts in the first three verses by reminding his readers of the situation that they were in without Jesus. Now, Paul wrote this letter about 20 or so years after Jesus had died. And so everybody who's reading this letter would have become a Christian at some point during that time. And so for most of them, they would have been able to remember a time in their lives when they weren't a Christian. And so they'd be able to remember what life was like beforehand. Now, we've, we've got a lot of different stories in this room. Uh, there'll be people here who won't remember a time in their life when they didn't know God. Uh, There'll be people who might have become Christians a bit later in life. And and for you, there'll be a a real understanding of the difference that Jesus has made in your life. And there'll be people here who are still working out where they're at with Jesus, which gives you a different perspective as well. Wherever you're coming from, though, whatever your background is, these first three verses here, they explain the situation that anybody is in without Jesus. And the first thing that Paul tells them is that you are dead in your transgressions and sins. So transgressions and sins are the way in which we're disobedient to how God has called us to live. Dead in your sins. It's powerful language, isn't it? Um, There are a few people here who work in medical-related roles, and you probably see dead bodies from time to time in that role. I saw a dead body for the first time in my life last year. My, um, my grandpa died, and I was one of the first ones to arrive at the nursing home afterwards and you know, completely desensitised to death. I just assumed that as soon as someone dies, someone comes and takes the body away straight away. But I, I got there, and he was just lying there on the bed. And there's, there's something different, I think, about a dead body to one that's alive. There's, there's just a difference to it. Um, there's a real... Well, I found anyway, there's a real sense of emptiness. It's like someone's sucked all of the life out of the body. There's nothing left. There's no hope of recovery. 
And that's what our sins have done to us. Just like disease can physically kill us, our disobedience to God does the same thing spiritually. There's a broken relationship between us and God. Paul speaks of his readers before becoming Christians as being influenced by three things. There's the world, the devil, and the flesh. And we can still see the impact of these things in our lives today. So firstly, following the ways of the world. So chasing after things that are normal in the world around us, but that pull us away from God. It's wanting what other people have, or wanting other people to think more highly of us. When Paul talks in verse 2 about following the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, he's talking about the devil. He's quite clear in this letter that there's a constant spiritual battle going on. We'll get to chapter 6 of Ephesians in a few weeks' time, and there we'll see that Paul encourages his readers to stand firm against the spiritual forces who are working against them. But for now, the point he's trying to make is that people who aren't following Jesus are ultimately following the devil who's trying to lead people away from God. And then there's our flesh. In verse 3, we read, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. So it's when we follow the desires of our bodies and our minds, rather than following God. And because of our sinful nature, we're deserving of wrath, Verse 3. It's a bit like someone today who, who breaks the law and receives a punishment for it. We've all broken God's law, and we all deserve his punishment. That's where you were. That's what you were, Paul is saying to his readers. Without God, you were dead in your sin. You were influenced to go astray, and you were deserving of wrath. This is where we stand without Jesus. I think part of the tension here is that for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, these things haven't exactly disappeared from our lives. We still sin. We're still easily led astray at times by the desires within us and the the things around us. There's no one who could honestly read those verses and say, oh, gee, I'm, I'm glad I got past that stage. If you're here just checking out church, not identifying as a Christian, I couldn't blame you for feeling a bit put off by these first three verses. It seems like quite ugly, judgmental language to use to describe people who aren't Christians. But the thing is, it's not elevating Christians as being better than everybody else. It's it's saying this is where we're all at without Jesus. And in the verses that follow, we'll see that this passage It isn't here to to heap God's hatred on us for the things that we do wrong, but it's to show God's great love for us in making things right. All right, so Paul's given us the bad news, the situation that anybody is in without Jesus, what we were. And now he moves on to the good news, what God has done in response, what we are now. So just to give you a bit bit of a heads up, the sermon gets a bit more positive from this point on. 
All right, firstly, verse 5. We've been made alive in Christ. So even when we were dead in our transgressions, because of God's great love and mercy, he made us alive. Now, we could never have made ourselves alive. Paul wants us to be certain from these first three verses that on our own, we're hopelessly dead spiritually. It would have been like me standing at grandpa's bedside and encouraging him to to make himself alive, to, to wake up. Our sinful nature is a mountain that's too big for us to climb. And so God did what had to be done for us to be made alive. And that brings us to verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Alicia, my wife and I have been coming along here to Trinity Bay since mid-January. And something that I've noticed in that time is that grace is a word that gets used a lot here. I think that's a real legacy that John has left in his time here. It's making sure that grace is something that we set before our eyes as a church community. Grace is God's free, undeserved mercy. It's what was shown to us on the cross when Jesus died so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be made alive, even when we were dead in our sins so that we could avoid God's wrath. Grace is completely from God. We don't earn it ourselves. And faith, faith is the humble trust with which we receive this grace. So for the visual learners among you, imagine imagine a water pipe. So water gets pumped, it flows through the pipe, it gets to where it's going. Think about grace as being the water and faith as being the pipe. So grace is what saves us, but faith is what we receive it through. That was just a helpful illustration I heard once that kind of helped me to think about how faith and grace work together. But then I've got a civil engineering degree, so I find water pipes quite exciting <laughs> to think about. You might not, but if it's helpful for you, then keep it in mind. We've been made alive. We've been saved by grace through faith. And we've been raised and seated in in the heavenly realms with Christ, verse 6. So this is speaking of the sure hope that we have of eternity with Jesus. If you cast your eye back to chapter 1, verse 20, which we read last week, uh, you'll see that it's worded very similarly to chapter 2, verse 6. So um, chapter 1, verse 20 says, He, so God, raised Christ from the dead. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then we get to chapter 2 verse 6 and it's saying that God does the exact same thing for us. Jesus didn't just die to take the punishment for our sins and save us from facing wrath. God raised him to life. And he promises to raise us to life as well if we put our trust in him. So even though we're not properly present with Jesus in the heavenly realms, anyone who's put their trust in Jesus has been made alive in him. And so we can speak of being seated there with him. It's a sure hope. Because Jesus died, we know that grace is freely available to us if we accept it with faith. And because Jesus was raised 
we know that if we've put our trust in him, then we'll be raised just as he was. And we'll get to enjoy God's blessings forever. I think there's a, a huge encouragement for all of us here, but especially for those who are, who are conscious of having once been dead. Verses 1 to 3 apply for all of us equally, because that's the situation that we're all in without Jesus. But for those who have come to faith later in life, um, you can probably relate to it on a bit of a deeper level. If you've, um, if you've been on a few camps or holidays in your time, then you'll probably have worked out that, how do I put this, different people have different approaches to how much luggage they bring along. I was reminded of this on a retreat that I went on a couple of weeks ago with, I was driving a couple of, of mates of mine down there. And so I've, it's, it's a two-night retreat, it's in cabins, it's not roughing it by any stretches of the imagination. So I brought a bag, you know, about this big with a couple of changes of clothes in it and a sleeping bag, you know, could carry it in one hand pretty easily. So I've loaded that up in the boot. I've gone to pick up my first mate and he's packed a similar amount of stuff. So he's put his stuff in, we've got in, we've filled up about 10% of a, a Mazda 3 boot space between us. And then we've gone to pick up the third guy and he's walked out of his house with two massive bags over his shoulders and he's sort of straining with the weight of them. He's sort of brought them down and put them down and then his wife's come out with another big bag as well. And we're looking at him thinking, mate, what's, what's going on? You don't have to pitch your intent on this. And in the same way, we all bring different amounts of baggage before God. Some of us will have lived relatively good lives. Others will look back and see nothing but guilt and shame. These verses show that if our trust is in Jesus, then we're all on a level playing field. No one has lived a good enough life that they can boast before God. Everyone is lost without Jesus. But at the same time, if our trust is in him, then there's nothing in our lives that his death was not enough to account for. We were dead in our sins, deserving of wrath. But God, in his loving mercy, made us alive in Jesus. Why? Well, verse 10 we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, the idea of being God's handiwork gives us a real sense of dignity and worth. We're creations of God, who he takes pride in. I was chatting with Ben Chapman a few weeks ago, and the, the topic got onto some of the DIY projects that he's been doing around his house, and before too long, he had the phone out and he was scrolling through and he was showing me all the things he's been doing around the house, so the, the decking, the landscaping, the fence and everything, and it all looked fantastic. You know, I could never have done that sort of thing. And that was Ben's handiwork. It was something that he did for a reason and it was something that he rightly takes pride in. It's not something that he's ashamed of. Now, I'm sure Ben and Sarah don't have people come around to their house and ask to see it, and Ben's too embarrassed to show them. I don't think so, anyway. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, that's the worth that we have.
together as God's handiwork. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works. We were dead without Jesus, but even still, God uses us to do his work in the world. A friend of mine was telling me recently about a friend of his who um, was a business owner. And for his business, what he used to do was employ ex-prisoners in the business because no one, nobody else seemed to give them a go. And so there was one guy who was there, um, ex-prisoner, first day on the job, just learning the ropes, and he got called into the, the boss's office. And so he walks in thinking, oh, no, what have, what have I done now? And the, the boss brings him in, closes the door, and gives him a whole bunch of envelopes with, with checks inside them. And he says to him, all right, I need you to hand out all the paychecks to all the employees. And the, the guy's looked at all these paychecks, he's looked at the boss, and he's thought to himself, are you serious? Like, you know I've just got out of prison, right? Well, you can bet that that new worker felt completely differently about himself and his role at the company after being trusted in that way. It's a great honour that God has used us to do his work. Colin mentioned a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the the first half of Ephesians 1, um, we saw that even before God made the world, he planned for us to be united with him in Christ. And in the same way, he planned to use us for his glory. And those, those good works that we do are going to look different for different people. In our gathering, we've got people that have been involved in mission, uh, we've got people who serve faithfully here on music, with the kids, doing setup and pack up, all sorts of different things. We've got people who passionately share the good news about Jesus with those who need to hear it. Uh, we've got people who put a lot of time and effort into caring for those who need it. Uh, we've got people like Pete who go and do other things like helping those that need it as well. Um, there's, there's all sorts of good works that are going on here. And God uses all of those things. It's important to remember that this passage doesn't end at verse 9. Grace isn't something that we just accept and then go on living life however we want. It requires a response. Faith involves giving our lives over to God. Living for him rather than us. But the important point that this passage makes is that we don't try to live good lives to win favour with God and to earn our salvation. We know that we've been saved by God's grace and so we live our lives in response to that. There's a big difference between doing good works so that we can be saved and being saved so that we can do good works. Our actions are out of grateful response, not to impress God. And we can live with real freedom, knowing that. We were dead in our sins, deserving of God's judgment. We're now saved by grace through faith. Our eternity secure in Jesus. Now, the wrong application to take from this passage would be, just try harder. Try harder to not sin 
try harder to do good works. The right application is this. Fix your eyes on God and what he's done and live in response. God doesn't intend us to to will ourselves not to sin. He wants us to look to him and to respond to what he's done for us. The more we do that, the better placed we'll be to do the good works that he's prepared for us. Many of you will know that I study at Bible College SA at the moment. There's a few other people here who have studied there or who do study there at the moment. The principal of the college is a guy called Tim Patrick, who is not here, so I can say whatever I want about him. (laughs) No, I won't won't say anything too bad. It's fine. Uh, Tim actually used to go to my previous church, Trinity Inner South, and um, at Trinity Inner South, well, actually, if you look inside your leaflets, you'll see that we've got these sort of contact cards. Um, and one of, the, one of the options on there is, I'd like to find out more about Jesus. So that's an, um, an option that we give for people who are kind of exploring Christianity or want to find out more to, to tick that. And, and we can get in touch and help them to, to think things through it. Uh, we, we have similar contact cards to that Inner South, and there's a, a similar one about finding out about Jesus on there. Tim, every time he's filling in a contact card, will tick that box just out of principle. He's, so he's not... Tim's a pretty smart guy. He's been in church ministry for about 20 years. He runs a Bible college. He's got a PhD in theology. He's learned a thing or two about Jesus in that time. But the point he's making is that the more we're learning about Jesus the more we're reflecting on this message of grace, the better placed we'll be and the better equipped we'll be to live our lives joyfully in God's service. The risk of me saying that is we'll get 100 contact cards all with that box ticked this week, so don't feel the need to do that. (laughs) The last thing I'll leave you with is from a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester, a different Tim. The aim of the book is to help us to address specific sin in our lives. Uh, But the guy writing it doesn't do that by encouraging us to try harder. He does it by encouraging us to set our sights on God and to let that overpower the things that lead us to sin. And he gives these four reminders to help us to do that. And I've got some blanks that you can fill in. Uh, These things are are very much in line with the heart of the passage that we've just read. And I I think we'd agree, we'd all agree that these four things are true, but so often we need reminding of them in the heat of the moment. So firstly, God is great, so we don't have to be in control. God is great, so we don't have to be in control. Knowing that God is in control of everything frees us from the need to have to worry about everything or to want to take control of all circumstances around us. It helps us to trust God when things are out of our hands, which, let's face it, they often are. Secondly, God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. God is glorious, so we don't have to fear others. We don't have to let other people's expectations control us. 
We don't have to be slaves to the ways of the world. Because God offers us so much more than everything and anyone in the world ever could. Thirdly, God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is good, so we don't have to look elsewhere. God is better and longer-lasting than anything else on offer. There's nothing else that we could desire in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, that is going to satisfy us like a right relationship with God will. Everything else that we seek happiness and fulfillment in is ultimately going to leave us dissatisfied. And finally, God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. God is gracious, so we don't have to prove ourselves. We're going to stuff up at times. It's human nature. We're not living life to to prove to God that we're worthy of being let into heaven. We live life knowing that we're not worthy, knowing that on our own, we're dead in our sins, but knowing that we've been made alive in Christ, we've been saved by grace through faith, and living each day of our lives in joyful response to that. How about I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this great news that we read in this passage, that we're saved by grace through faith. And we thank you so much that it's not our works that our salvation is hanging on, but it's the awesome work that you've done for us through Jesus. We just pray that you'd help us to take this to heart each and every day, uh, to know that it's your grace that has saved us. We pray that that would be a liberating knowledge for all of us and one that drives us to, to joyfully live our lives in response to you and to, to joyfully encourage others to do likewise. Amen.